I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. My guest this week is Rodney Foxworth, CEO of Common Future, formerly known as Bali, that has an audacious vision for a new economy that works for all and extracts from none. Rodney once said that in order to build a just and equitable economy, we must reckon with our compounding moral debts and heal the wounds caused by generations of economic plunder and exploitation. And for those of us with power and wealth engendered by the status quo, it means giving up some of it. Rather than doing well by doing good, it means doing good by giving up more, less privilege, less wealth, and less power. Rodney fights every day for those working tirelessly, building trust and using their power for the benefit of others. And for Rodney, his family and hometown of Baltimore had a profound impact that continues to give him ongoing optimism. Baltimore has had uh, such a profound impact upon me and shaping me. Um, you know, for those who don't know Baltimore, Baltimore is both this amazing, incredible city with wonderful people, everyday residents, change makers. And it's also a city that has been, you know, really embodies, I think, so many of the challenges um, that we face in this country uh, and cities. And so Baltimore is a place that is just rife with structural racism, over-policing of communities, mass incarceration, particularly of African-American communities, a struggling education system, right? Um, a public education system, I should say. And, you know, I benefited from one, having parents that were just really incredible and, and present in my life, um, working class parents um, that really demonstrated to me the importance of integrity and, and work. Um, and I think I bring this up because particularly in a city like Baltimore, you, 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 it's sometimes hard to acknowledge the privileges that you might have. Mm. So I was very privileged to have just these phenomenal parents um, that really instilled in me a sense of education and really capitalizing on any opportunities that I might have. That said, my mom was very cognizant of ensuring that I understood that as a young black male, that the, the, the odds against me were high and that I needed to work especially hard. You know, really this whole theme of working twice as hard and expecting half as much is something that um, my mother and my parents and just really my family just imprinted upon me. And unfortunately, Bryce, um, that was demonstrated throughout my early years. Um, you know, my mom really began to teach me how to read at a very young age. I had this, 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 this challenge as a third grader. I went to public school in Baltimore City. But in the third grade, I had a teacher who accused me of being unable to read and mm. cheating um, on my assignments. Now, mind you, I had exceptional scores in the public testing and all this sort of things that I can attribute to just my, my parents really um, helping me to identify uh, education is something that was really important. Academics is something that was really important. So I had this teacher that accused me of not being able to read and, and, and cheating. I was a shy kid. Mm -hmm. I just didn't speak a lot. You know, um, I didn't participate in class in the same way. You know, I wasn't, I was, I'm still very introverted, not an extrovert. And so that's having had that experience of being accused of not being able to read and cheating. Um, I was fortunate that my mother, of course, understood that that could not possibly be true. Um, and she actually organized some other parents um, to identify a pattern that this teacher had in terms of 
falsely um, accusing young black boys. I mean, we're black boys, boys, right? Um, we're They're third. great. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and I bring that up because that's a systemic issue, right? That here I am was someone who actually was achieving high levels in, in school and, and had a teacher um, that um, because of this fact that I was a black male um, really uh, and allowed for her own biases yeah. um, to come in and how many other young boys were impacted by that yeah because it was determined to be a, a pattern and so what I what I what I remember from that was just the importance of people taking being empowered to take stances. And so the fact that my mother and other parents realized that this was a pattern and actively ensured that the school did not enable this sort of behavior yeah. any longer, was just really incredible for someone my age to recognize and to see. Um, so that was something that, that was actually a really impactful moment for me. Yeah, um, sounds like it. Yeah, um, and sorry. No, and that's, um, that's helpful context. Cause you know, we talk about, um, sometimes like this notion of community trauma, right? And so systemic racism uh, has resulted in just kind of this trauma and to where, and you know, if you look, if you study trauma, and I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but, um, but you know, people react differently, right? You look at the, the soldiers that returned from Vietnam and those that were able to assimilate back into society and those that didn't, and they had the same experience. And I think you look at like communities, communities of color, places like Baltimore, um, you, that didn't define kind of your path forward. In fact, I think on some levels, what I'm hearing is this, you had a powerful mother who cared deeply for you and wasn't going to let this happen. And so you had someone in your corner, you know, in, in third grade. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's reflective of like fast forward your own career and you're working in black male achievement and just recognizing the responsibility of, of everyday people to, to empower and to use their power for the benefit of others. Um, because it is a traumatic occurrence, you know, I, you know, in some of the research and just leading up to this, looking at some of the ways you've talked about your past, you know, you know growing up as a young black man, not being easy, navigating police, threats on your life, um, living somewhere where violence is, is an everyday occurrence. I mean, like, that's, that's not my experience. And so um, that, that has a shaping element uh, to it. And so how, how then, what were, so your mother, your parents, um, very, very formative for you. Were there others in your early life that kind of helped you pursue and, and see a path uh, that's gotten you to kind of where you are today, uh, leading Common Future, having having uh, been a consultant at some major foundations, uh, doing the work with Blackmail Achievement? What, what, what helped guide that path for you? Really, Bryce, so many people. Hmm. And I think this is the, the thing is the amount of people that have had a profound impact upon me to get me to where I am today, I mean, it's countless. I mean, many teachers, particularly I, I have had, again, I went to public school in Baltimore City. I had out, outstanding teachers, Black women in particular, that mm -hmm. just pushed me, challenged me, inspired me, um, ensured that I understood what my own talents might be and um, encouraged me to really be able to shine whatever light I could. And, and so there are so many people. And one of the things too, Bryce, that I think is really important. I was discussing this with a friend of mine a few weeks ago. There were people who understood who I grew up with who ended up taking different paths in life, right? Um, who unfortunately, you know, experienced time in prison, um, did a number of things that um, 
I'm fortunate that I did not go down that path. Mm. But some of those people were actually ensuring that I did not do those things, mm. right? Um, you know, some of the peers that I uh, surrounded myself with who recognized that I might have a, a trajectory elsewhere in a more positive light um, and really kind of protected me and insulated me from some of the things that um, I'm just really fortunate that I was able to have that sort of support as well. And yeah. I think we don't talk about this often enough about these, the nuances of, of, of the experience that you might have in growing up in a place like Baltimore, where the same thing that might be, you know, deemed as a disadvantage might also have like some profound beauty in it as well. And so this, I think this is something that applies to all of us in our lives. Um, we don't, those are sort of like the unsung people. And so I think it's something that I have discovered in my life how important that was to have individuals at all levels, whether in school and family, people who were making different decisions, but acknowledge that I might be bringing something different to the table and they wanted to protect that, mm. that they wanted me to make sure that I had the opportunity to really excel in ways that um, might bring inspiration to others. And I didn't think about it at that level as a kid, of course, yeah. this is only years and years later. And so there are so many people um, that I can really, you know, a, a, a firm were individuals that just supported me. That's and awesome. um, I'm just thankful for it. Yeah. You once said um, about your parents, and it's kind of uh, shifting into to kind of your, some of your current work. Um, you, you heard the narrative growing up from your parents. If you work hard, things will work for you. Uh, you said, but I witnessed my parents working very hard, and yet I did not see the, that adage apply to us. Uh, what I saw instead were the sacrifices, but I also witnessed the beautiful things that people did every day, uh, kind of what you're talking about, stitching together full lives despite the challenges, and that you walked away recognizing that there's a tremendous capacity for people, uh, but we need to deeply interrogate and work against the structures that work against them. So uh, obviously, I think some of, the, some of the amazing things that you're working on and, and the, the voice that you're bringing to these communities across the country, I think, is the the, the the benefit of hindsight, looking back and seeing the juxtaposition uh, of a Baltimore specifically, you know, your, your home of origin, that has these deeply beautiful things and these deeply tragic things. And to be able to kind of give voice to both and to say they both shape us. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, your work now at Common Future um, and, and the things leading up to that. Um, how, how does that look? How does that look to, to recognize, okay, you know, there's, there's this this word from your parents that you're hearing, uh, you know, work hard and good things will come to you. Uh, and then the juxtaposition of like, well, but there's, there's systemic barriers that, that limit the ability of good, hardworking people uh, to make it in, in our society. Uh, how, do, how, do you, how do you push that forward? What does that, narrative, what does that look like for you in your, in your everyday work? You know, Bryce, I think it really first starts with acknowledging what those challenges and barriers are. Mm. And I think particularly in the, this generational moment that we're living, we're all experiencing um, this multi-generational moment actually with this pandemic, the economic crisis um, attached to it or in response to it, this um, increase in acknowledging the, you know, the anti-black racism and racism more broadly in the US. Um, it takes us actually acknowledging what those barriers and challenges are, mm. one. And, and then, and for me, and I think this is sort of like what my parents always instilled in me and my family was to say, acknowledge these barriers and what can you do to put yourself in the best position 
um, because unfortunately, those structures aren't going to just unravel on their own. And so I take it as a, as a profound privilege to be able to be in the role that I'm in, in which I can help to shine light onto these challenges, mm. right? Challenges that have persisted for a long time, right, Bryce? So these are not new. People might be just discovering them, but individuals like myself and so many others have lived through them um, since the beginning. Um, and, and so I think the navigating, navigating it is so difficult only because so few people can truly acknowledge what those barriers are, what those challenges are. Mm. And so when I think about the work at Common Future and I think about my work just historically where I've really prioritized being able to invest in and resource communities, individuals from communities that have been most impacted, impacted by um, racial injustice, economic injustice, um, disproportionately. Um, you know, being able to be in a position, I've always attempted to put myself in a position in which I could actually directly invest in and resource really capable, inspiring people. And at no point in my career have I found a shortage of those people. Mm. I think this is like the, the thing that is so profound for me is that I'm aware of how many just talented, entrepreneurial, impactful people exist. And simply having an opportunity to be able to invest in them and resource them has actually been just kind of the crown jewel of like my career, mm. right? Being able to do that because unfortunately, um, as we know, as you and I know, Bryce, and others are really becoming to understand more, um, talented, talent is equally distributed, opportunity is not. Yeah. And so, you know, it's incumbent upon people like myself, you, so many of our peers and colleagues to really capitalize on the opportunity that we have to actually be able to invest in so many people um, that just have the talent, they have the capability, they just need the resources. And to also continuously shine a light on those structural issues um, that continue to plague us. And so what, from your perspective, what, do you, what is it about this moment um, that is, is unique? Because you, you brought it up. I mean, this has been an issue for centuries against black people in America, um, specifically Jim Crow since the early 1900s leading up to you know, what quiet Jim Crow in the 1980s and 1990s as we look at the change in banking. I mean, like it, things were still around, redlining and such, uh, even beyond the 1950s when it was technically illegal. What is it about this moment that you think is, is, is important and powerful? And, and why, why do you think more people are at least acknowledging that the white experience is different and that the black experience um, has been and will continue to be profoundly impacted by issues of, of slavery and segregation until these things are addressed. Why do you think this moment is different? Bryce, I think this moment is different. Um, and I say this as an optimist or with my hat on as an optimist right now anyway, um, is not so much because, so to your point, this has been happening forever. And quite frankly, African-Americans, Latinx, many, people of color have been champion, championing that there has been historic and contemporary barriers and challenges for communities. What I think has happened is because of the pandemic, COVID-19, mm. just the, it's such, an, it's such a revelatory experience because it's demonstrating all the cracks in the system, right? 
it's not, for example, that it's not because there's, uh, you know, something genetic about African-Americans that, you know, make us, you know, more susceptible to COVID-19. It's because of the systems in healthcare and health, the fact that disproportionately African-Americans and other people of color are front, on the front lines of certain jobs and employment that put us at risk than other disproportionately. And so people are starting to see more and more like the cracks in the system. I think COVID-19 has really opened up that experience for so many people. And quite frankly, again, you know, African-Americans, other people of color have been saying this forever yeah. and pushing, pushing this narrative. So I want to just bring that up because I think there's a change that we, we have to see from others. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're right. I mean, you're, it has definitely that. laid bare these cracks. Um, healthcare, uh, which is intimately tied to economic opportunity and, and jobs to, uh, you know, you work in the finance and philanthropy, philanthropy section, right? So it's laid bare some of the, some of the issues that have been present. Uh, you know, we talked earlier in this season with Maurice and just talking about access to capital and, you know, the, a lot of the problems that we saw even during Jim Crow have not gone away. Uh, you know, put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. And so I think the reality is banking has still not shifted to make it more equitable. And that, that was laid bare as we saw the PPP and the rollout and uh, how many of our, our black communities and brown communities were, were overlooked uh, and didn't, that's right. didn't get access uh, initially. Um, and, and, see, and Bryce, that's a, that's a great point about PPP because it also, quite frankly, the way that it was structured at the beginning, we already, those of us who do, who do this work understood that it was structurally um, biased because the, the way that the SBA program was administered already had biases yep. built in. And so it was also a thing new for so many people, but those like you and I already understood what those, those biases were, those structural challenges. So again, it was another opportunity for people to get a window in yeah. a view on what's already been happening. Yeah, and it's hard, and you, you mentioned uh, optimism. You know, so that's one thing I, I've appreciated about you, just in the midst of all of this, just the optimism that you have for, our, for a common future. Um, because I think it's hard, you know, as you've been in this work for, for, for a couple decades, myself as well, you get sometimes a little frustrated that people aren't seeing these things. And then now, as the light bulbs potentially start to flicker, maybe not even completely go off, and, uh, you're like, yeah, we've been talking about this for years. Where, where have you been? And it's hard to not have that reaction because that also put, puts people in a, in a bad position and, and maybe pulls them back, has, causes them to retract. So how do you maintain that optimism that really pushes into um, a future that we hopefully can realize uh, as a society? Well, Bryce, as you know, it's very challenging. <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> you know, it is very difficult. Um, you know, the, the reality of it, though, is... And again, I'm just, I feel fortunate. And this is where the optimism comes from. Mm. You know, Common Future works with a community of well over 200, 300 individuals across this country, working in communities, Cincinnati, Jackson, Atlanta, many communities across the country um, that are just, quite frankly, they just continue to persist and build beautiful community. And I get optimistic because I see if we are able to invest in and resource them, give them power, then there's a lot to look forward to. Mm. So I would say the leaders on the ground um, that we're able to work with 
advocates, you know, individuals that work in institutions and systems uh, that really are allies to these individuals give me so much hope mm. and optimism. That's good. And so that's what keeps me, that's what keeps me optimistic. It's, it's hard, as you say, but there's so many people just doing incredible work. Well, and you, so recently, Common Future, you guys changed your name. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was actually right before the pandemic hit. So it's probably been a wild ride of, of that. Formerly Bali. Uh, I'm glad you changed it. It was a little mouthful and confusing. Uh, but, you know, an economy that works for all and extracts, extracts from none. Talk to me about the kind of the evolution of the organization. And, and you know, you're the CEO um, and you didn't start this organization, but you, your fingerprints are all over it. I mean, everything you've talked about and, and even the, the future that you're trying to imagine. So talk to us about what is common future and what is it that you're trying to, to build? Well, first of all, Bryce, I really appreciate you pronouncing the acronym correctly. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just last week I had a number of people refer to it as bail. Uh, oh. um, <laughs> let's not, let's not go that way. <laughs> so, so I appreciate you, um, you know, having the correct pronunciation. And, um, you know, one of the things is that, so the organization will have been around for 20 years next year. So in 2021, the organization will have been around for 20 years. Um, had a phenomenal historic um, start. Um, an entrepreneur in Philadelphia, Judy Wicks, um, was one of the founding voices, um, really wanted to ensure that entrepreneurs who were working on ensuring there was more sustainable local practice uh, would actually have a voice um, and would actually be able to help shape uh, narratives and lead one of the challenges though, and this goes to your question, Bryce, is that you know, at, its, at its origins, I think the organization really had a challenge beyond, um, it was, I mean, it was quite frankly, it was founded by um, exclusively white individuals with really phenomenal intent. Mm. Uh, and really the organization and the network kind of grew from that. And so the, the, the diversity, the level of inclusion within the organization and its network uh, just was not there. In fact, there was an article written about two years ago in Nonprofit Quarterly really speaking to this, this fact in which the writer who had attended a conference several years ago, about 800 people, and they pointed out there were maybe 20 people of color at the entire conference, of 800 plus people. And so the organization has done a, quite a turnaround um, that really was instigated by my predecessor, who was the founding executive director, um, who I can give so much credit to for acknowledging, along with um, many leaders in the network and, and, and the team, the board, just some of the blind spots that we had as an organization mm. and what we need to lean into to become more diverse, to be more inclusive, to be more equitable. And so there was a lot of transformation that happened internally. And I think this is one of the things that when I think about a lot of organizations, when they make declarative statements externally, one of the things you have to think about is what are you doing internally to mm. reflect what you're committing to externally? And, and so, you know, there really was a, uh, the road paved for me to be able to step into my, to my role as an African-American male from West Baltimore and really we become a much more diverse and inclusive organization and also network. And so to your question, Bryce, really we've prioritized, you know, black, indigenous, Latinx, uh, people of color, 
communities, rural um, Southern communities, um, because we recognize that economic justice, we can't have an equitable economy without first reconciling with the racial dynamics and racism, right? And so from there, we really prioritized um, leaders and communities that are working diligently to ensure that we're not exploiting and extracting from those who have been historically extracted and exploited. Yeah, that's great. One thing you do say about common future, which um, I think piggybacks off that, and I, and I really have come to really appreciate the name common future more and more uh, as I continue to learn more about what you're trying to build uh, and, and the real purpose, I think, behind the organization. But you said at one point at the core, I believe that we, are, we have mutuality in our downfalls and successes as people. It's not just about interrogating systems and institutions, but building alternatives to replace those failing systems. Because I think that's, that's part of it as well. It's like, you know, there is a place to, to tear down, um, but then also to recognize um, the value of a shared future. Um, and I think there's an invitation there, which I really appreciate as well. It's to say, look, we, we need to give voice and, and opportunity to people in places that have not had them uh, at, while inviting in folks to participate, to build a shared and common future. Um, how, how are you able to do that? Because, um, I, I, you know, I, you guys are only, you're a couple years into your work, uh, and, and I appreciate you mentioning kind of the internal work first, which I'm sure it's hard, it's hard work, and now you're moving into the external uh, future of common future. How, how are you doing that? How are you able to build that shared uh, future where there's, there's, because there's a lot of, of woundedness in the communities in which you work. There's a lot of pain, um, the trauma that we talked about. And so, and people respond in different ways. So there's a, there's a right place for anger. There's a right place for, for, for mourning and for sorrow, but then to look and, okay, now how do we, how do we move forward together? How do we, how do we do that? How, how have you been able to do that successfully? Um, as I've seen. So one thing, Bryce, I think, to put it in perspective as well, when you think about, you know, the shared future, this common future, mutuality. One of the things I like to talk to talk about is we, we don't realize, so one, globally, we are a majority people of color world, right? Um, in the US, we were quickly become majority people of color as well. And prior to COVID-19, we knew that if, if the economy continued in the trajectory that it was going, that within the next few decades, two to three decades, African-Americans, Latinx would have very little wealth in this country. Around the same time in which people of color are becoming the majority. And so I always like to think about, because we also often, oftentimes like to think about like questions of racial injustice as like something that you know people of color have to solve mm. because it doesn't impact anyone else. Well, the reality is, if we're becoming more and more majority people of color country and our economy is such in which the majority of people in our economy do not have any net wealth, negative you know, net wealth, then we actually have a common problem, right? That needs to be solved among all of us. And I think that COVID-19 again, um, is a window into what happens when 
we don't consider what is occurring with other individuals that don't have the same experience as us, right? In other communities, when you see the, the breakdown in these structures. So when I think about the work that we do at Common Future, again, it goes back to an incredible network that we work with. These are individuals who have built up so much trust, spent years building up trust in communities. They're not just fixated on the growth of their organizations. Mm. Right? They're really looking at it from an ecosystem approach. They're looking at it, how do I move this community? How do I move the city of Cincinnati? How do I move Jackson? How do I move these places in ways that are about sharing power and providing optimism and hope for people? And so I think to your question, Bryce, it's really having the trust and working authentically with the folks in our network who understand their communities best. In the same way that I was shaped by Baltimore and have almost an um, inherent understanding of the city because of my, my time growing up there and being a part of the fabric, we really identify leaders who have a similar um, connection. And that enables them to be able to actually understand what their communities need in the moments that they need them, right? So it's common future. We don't look at ourselves as an organization that proposes what things need to look like as much as we listen deeply to those who are having these experiences and have a lot of knowledge to share back with us and work with them collaboratively to ensure that they can get the results that they believe their community needs. And so I think that's a different approach, particularly as an organization that's national, that a, a number of national organizations you have you know, presupposed ideas on what something might look like in a community. And instead, we work with folks that are on the ground who are committed to these communities, who are part of these communities, who again, you talk about mutuality, they themselves as individuals and organizations are impacted by what happens in their community. They're not safe. They don't, and they're not distant from them, those challenges. They are experiencing them themselves. Yeah. And so I think that is something that is really important. Um, and we see this be successful in so many other organizations. What, so your, your time in, uh, in philanthropy uh, and, and, your, and your work in this space, help us understand what, what needs to change. Because I, I think one of the experiences I've seen is money is power. Um, and so as we talk about giving voice to those who have those experiences and, and the lived experiences in these communities and, and to really back those opportunities. How, how does that happen? What needs to shift in our, in our thinking and in our, in our action? Because I think philanthropy um, to a certain extent is complicit in, in many of these communities and makes it very difficult for a lot of these leaders that you work with uh, to get the attention of, of either grant makers or, or the investment community, you know, across the spectrum of capital. What, what do you need, what, what needs to change and how can, how can we work towards that future? Well, Bryce, you said it. Money is power. <laughs> <laughs> Money is power, right? And I think one of the things that we just don't, more and more of the conversation is happening now, but it's still, I think, a conversation in terms of how power shows up in philanthropy. For example, um, the vast majority of foundation executives, I believe 88% are, are, are white. Mm. Um, and we have this belief that there are there are not people of color women of color in particular that can't take on these roles and have these opportunities well that's untrue right that's just simply not true and we have to actually interrogate whether or not philanthropy as it's currently constructed 
is able to distribute power and decision-making in the way that it, it should be able to, right? And so we've, we've not been able to get a sense of what it really means for foundations and philanthropy to really authentically give up power and decision-making to those who are most impacted by these challenges. And not only is impacted by the challenges, but actually I believe that those who are closest to the problems are closest to the solutions. And so it really makes more sense to invest in the leadership capability and decision-making capability of people who make up the Common Future Network, for example, right? They really do know best. Um, and so, but that's a power conversation, Bryce. And it's really hard to give up the purse strings, right? It's really difficult. When you've had an opportunity to make determinations where more money goes, it's really difficult to like walk that back. And I like to believe that most people who work in philanthropy, if not everyone in philanthropy, got into the work because they wanted to make some good happen. And so I think we have an opportunity now, and we do this at Common Future, a number of the folks that we work with, we see a number of foundations do this where they're actually beginning to seed power and control to say investment decisions, grant making decisions that really implicate and impact communities in which um, these foundations just don't have a lot of understanding of. Yeah, and I think that's really profoundly powerful. The other thing I'd say to you, Bryce, is that we've got to be able to see philanthropy as an opportunity for catalytic capital, because I think there's a distinction between philanthropy and charity. And I think philanthropy has an opportunity to really make these strategic bets mm. where we can think more than just about the grant making dollars, but is there an opportunity, for example, for foundations and other and, and, and donors to think about their, their grants, their charitable donations as sort of a springboard to building economic power in communities, right? Yeah, and that's that's such a helpful distinction, you know, and and because I think um, a lot of times, it, when what I hear from foundations, a lot of times the counter narrative is, well, we've got our donors' intent, you know, so there's which there's truth, right? So there's, there is some work that needs to be done on the federal level at the IRS around kind of like the future of foundations. It's a previous episode with, with Astrid and Matthew um, just talking about how we got here in the 1960s and how it's basically not been touched in the last 50 years. So there's definitely some work that I think we need to push forward um, that would allow kind of an expansive view on what that looks like. But also, to your point, I think you brought up some really helpful ways to say, okay, even within donor constraint, how can you create uh, grant-making committees or investment committees that are reflective uh, of the demographics of the communities in which you're working? Allow them to like, give them the donor's intent and say, okay, here's, here are their parameters. Help us make the best decisions. Uh, or like you said, using philanthropy. I love that. The catalytic capital to think about ways to invest more deeply and, and to springboard new solutions, new innovation. Um, and they can do that within the donor's intent. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And even, and, and, and quite frankly, Bryce, there are a number of institutions and families that are really interrogating the donor's intent mm. and trying to figure out, are there ways to, again, pull themselves out of it if they actually believe that the donor's intent no longer fits where the world is today, Yeah. right? And, and that actually doesn't require, you know, federal policy shifts or anything like that. That actually requires, goes back to my earlier comment about the internal work that has to occur, mm right? The understanding that needs to occur. So 
when I think about some of the foundations and institutions and families that are doing this really, you know, this great work of really seeding power and control, they're doing it because they went through a process. Some, they learned some hard lessons, right? Yeah. Where they concluded that this was actually the best way to move forward. And there may have been some, you know, some blowback to that. There may have been family members that said, wow, this is not the intent of the foundation. And however, you know, other family members said, this is what we need to do. This yeah. is the world that we're living in today. And we need to make sure that we're constantly evolving and being responsive. And so I, I like to think of this as an opportunity, um, given all this change that's happening for us to really, really consider what's at stake. Um, what power do we have? to actually make decisions internally in our organizations and within our foundations uh, and philanthropies and ensuring that we can have a pathway forward that really is about moving the interest and empowering communities that have been most impacted um, by extraction and exploitation in this economy. I think this is really critically important during this time in which there are opportunities for us to be able to prototype and develop different vehicles, strategies that really center the interests of communities that have been most impacted by injustice. And this is what I mean by the catalytic investment piece from philanthropy. What might it look like, for example, if foundations and grant makers and even some you know, progressive investors were to really rethink what it means about preserving their own capital what if they're looking at about return on investment for communities instead, right? What might it look like? And so we're seeing institutions and individuals make these decisions. We're starting to think about this as an organization. How do we, as a, a nonprofit, begin to think about how we leverage our own balance sheet to ensure that we're creating returns for community as much as for ourselves, if not more so? And I think that's something that we need to really be thinking about in this moment, not just thinking about it, but putting into action. And so I would encourage anyone who listens to this to think about how they might be able to pilot and prototype, um, make some small actions that could feed into learning for them to actually do bigger actions. To learn more about the work of Rodney and Common Future, check out commonfuture.co. Thanks for joining us for season two of More Than Profit. If you liked what you've heard, then do us a favor by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for early 2021 as we're already working to put together another season of More Than Profit. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Check out our work at accessventures.org. Thanks for listening.